Hello, and welcome to the first episode of In the Park, a podcast all about parks. We'll be getting out into the field, talking with experts, and learning about what we can do to not only appreciate our parks, but how we can become better stewards of the natural worlds in our neighborhoods. So I have been talking about starting this podcast for a while, but man, it's been a lot to learn. And I just kept putting it off thinking, oh, you're not ready yet. You're not ready yet. And then at some point I went, you know, just do it. Just jump in and and do one. So while this is the first episode, I'm going to consider this more of a uh, test episode, just me trying to figure out the logistics and just put together a short episode from start to finish and get it up online. So I'm uh, sure I'm going to be changing things up as I go. But for now, thank you for being my guinea pigs. And I would love to hear what you think, any suggestions and the sort of things you'd like to hear about on this podcast. So this week, we're going to visit Fort Tryon Park in Manhattan, go foraging for some edible berries you can find in the parks right now, and pay tribute to one of the most maligned birds in the avian kingdom, the humble pigeon. So let's talk about pigeons. Now, while it's probably not marked on your calendar, Sunday, June 13th is National Pigeon Appreciation Day. In fact, some other countries are starting to pick up on this trend, so it's looking like it's going to be International Pigeon Appreciation Day pretty darn soon. So why should you appreciate these birds that are often called rats with wings? Well, let's start with exactly what a pigeon is and where they come from. Uh, Pigeons are in the family Columbidae, which has over 300 different species of pigeons and doves, but the one uh, we are most familiar with is the rock pigeon or rock dove, Columbia livia, that we see literally everywhere, particularly in New York City, where I live. Uh, Fossil evidence so far indicates that the bird is originally from South Asia, but it quickly got around. Uh, Mesopotamia, Egypt, Greece, Rome, Africa, Europe, they are now found on every continent except Antarctica. Uh, The pigeons that you see in the United States are not protected birds. Most birds, except for uh, game birds, obviously, and a few other species, are protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. Uh, Back then, feathers in ladies' hats were such a fashion statement that we were literally killing entire species of birds in the name of fashion, and they were going extinct. And the law has not only stood the test of time, it gets updated every now and then to really make sure we are protecting the birds. So if if you think the NRA is tough, you haven't met the bird lobby. These guys are like steel. Uh, it is illegal to keep wild birds. You should know that. You can't even keep their corpses, their feathers, eggs, or nests without a license. And that is a very good thing for the birds. Uh, but pigeons get zero protection. For starters, because they, they are not native birds. So like the house sparrows and starlings, they're also considered nuisance birds and invasive, though unlike, unlike the other two species, pigeons really don't crowd out native birds. Uh, they, they just, they, they really don't. Um, they're, more, uh, they're more city birds, I would say. Also, pigeons aren't migratory birds. They, they really don't travel, and that's why they're often called uh, homing pigeons, because they just want to get back home and stay there, no matter where home is. <laughs> they, don't, they don't fly down to Mexico or Florida for the winter, you know, for a pigeon Home is just home. So uh, let me 
look at these other notes I have here. Um, oh, yeah, <clears throat> this is a good one. They also aren't technically wild birds. They are considered feral, like a feral cat, because pigeons in the U.S. are generally descended from domesticated birds who were brought here uh, either for, for food or pets or racing, and like a feral cat, they just got loose and then started to breed. So that's why we have so many pigeons. Um, in fact, by the way, some people think that the pigeon was the first domesticated animal. Now, I don't know about that, but they are definitely one of the earliest domesticated animals on the planet. And uh, they've been domesticated for about 10,000 years. So that's right around the time of, of dogs and sheep and goats. Um, so they, they've been with us for a very, very long time. Um, okay, but because these birds are not protected and considered nuisance birds, a lot of wildlife rehab places will not take them sadly. Uh, we are very fortunate in New York City to have Wild Bird Fund. Yay! Shout out to Wild Bird Fund, where prior to COVID, I was volunteering and working with pigeons like a lot, <laughs> like, a lot. And now that I'm fully vaccinated, hooray again, I'm planning on getting back to volunteering there, hopefully next week. So we'll we'll see. I've got to, I have to stop by there. Uh, but Wild Bird Fund does take pigeons as well as the two other nuisance birds, house sparrows and starlings. So I can say from experience that I probably the majority of our patients at no matter what time of year are pigeons. They, that's the majority of what is there. It's a whole lot of pigeons. <laughs> and by the way, this is the part where I'm going to go ahead. Whoop, let me move this microphone. I'm going to go ahead and get on a bit of a soapbox to other wildlife rehab organizations to encourage them to admit pigeons, house sparrows, and starlings as patients. Now, hear me out on this, wildlife rehabbers. Yes, I un totally, totally understand the lack of funds and the space and the manpower. I get that. But these are the three most common birds that people see every day. And when most people see a sick or injured animal, they want to help. It's like it's natural, human, compassionate instinct. So let's say you're your average person, you're walking down the street, you see a, a sick pigeon, and you go online and you look up a wildlife rehab center in your area. And they say, sorry, we don't take pigeons. That can be really depressing. Um, but the thing is, if these organizations do take these birds, okay, suddenly there's not only hope and a place to go, but these people are potential donors and volunteers. And you're really bringing awareness to your organization, to people who, you know, they, they might not be out in the park and see, you know, a, a an injured grackle, you know, that that's not where they are. They're mostly just walking down the street. So you really are, would be expanding your donor and volunteer base by accepting these species. But when you exclude them, you're not just turning away the birds, you're turning away the donors, okay? It's, it's like as if PBS had turned down Sesame Street because there were just too many kids. So accepting pigeons is not only going to increase your donor pool, but you, you might just be making more money, have more space, more volunteers, and, and it's just a win-win for everybody. I mean, it might be overwhelming at first, yeah, but it's going to pay off in the long run. That's that. That's all I wanted to say. That's my two cents on that. Um. I'll, now, okay. Now I'll get. Uh, I'll get back down off my off my little soapbox here. Okay. So, 
getting back to the life of pigeons. Um, you may not know this, but a lot of people keep them as pets, <laughs> way more than you would think. In fact, when I first started rescuing pigeons, I remember my, my mother going, oh, honey, don't, don't get a pigeon. Don't don't get a pigeon. And she was just so worried I was going to wind up with a pet pigeon. And then my Aunt Joyce, her twin sister, calls me up and she goes, oh, honey, your mom keeps saying, I, I just know she's going to wind up with a pet pigeon. She doesn't need a pigeon. You know, well, who does really? I mean, nobody needs, nobody needs a pigeon. Uh, let me... Where is my, what did I do with this? I'm going through these notes. And anyway, I don't know. But I, let me just say, I've been rescuing pigeons for several years now, and I do not have a pet pigeon. I will never say never, but for right now, I'm good. I got enough pets. <laughs> but but pigeons really do make wonderful pets. And maybe one day in the future, I will have them. Uh, they definitely need a little bit more space than a canary um, or a budgie, but they actually will bond with their owners because like I said, they were originally um, domesticated. So there's something still there, you know, in their, in their little bird brains. And if you're ever having a rough day and you need some cheering up, I'm just going to say Google pigeon pants. I swear to God, it will totally make your day. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a diaper on a pigeon butt and they are hysterical. So just pigeon pants, just trust me on that one. So, okay, why do I make, why do they make such great pets? Well, as I mentioned, they're feral animals, so they never totally lost their trust in humans. They, they, they like us. They really like us, you know? Uh, in fact, uh, pigeons will do a weird thing that, you know, in the rehab business, we call it a, a self-rescue. So when most wild animals are sick or injured, they'll, they'll go off to a quiet place to either recuperate or die in peace without being eaten alive. But pigeons have another option. Because they are still connected to us, they'll put their sickness right out there. And uh, now this hasn't been proven, but again, like I said, it's a common term in the rescue business regarding pigeons. It's like, okay, a sick and a sick pigeon can have, let's say, the option of hiding under a bush or some tall grass or just, just away from people, you know. But where do I usually find sick pigeons? Underneath an awning and right smack dab in front of a doorway. That's that's always where they are. They're in like a doorway. You can see them. Like I could probably walk down, go, go to midtown Manhattan, and I could probably find a sick pigeon right now. Um, so speaking of, why do cities have so many pigeons? Well, here we go. They evolved to live on cliffs. So when these birds see a bunch of skyscrapers, they just go, ah, looks like home to me, and they move in. And they lay their eggs up there and raise their young, and the city is perfect for them. A uh, couple little interesting facts. Did you know the Queen of England has a royal pigeon coop? Uh, Darwin was also known to keep quite a few pigeons and he bred them and studied them. I believe he was studying like genetics, I think. Um, and pigeons have obviously, they've been kept as racers for centuries. There's even a, a whole community in New York City of rooftop pigeon keepers. And it, where did I learn all this stuff about pigeons? I will tell you. Uh, there is a wonderful book. It is called Pigeons, the Fascinating Saga of the World's Most Revered and Reviled Bird by Andrew D. Blackman. And 
it came out. Um, I don't have the book in front of me, but oh, why does my microphone keep keep dropping? I keep I keep hunching down to like match my mic. I got to tighten that up. Um, anyway, uh, the book came out just a few years ago, so it's still very very new, and it has so many. Uh, fascinating stories about not only the history of the bird, but all these like wacky subcultures around pigeons, like like the crazy pigeon feeding people who are risking jail time to go feed them. And there's a there's also a really <laughs> really funny chapter about how the author had set up a meeting with boxer Mike Tyson, who you may or may not know is a huge fan of pigeons. In fact, it's a almost a famous story. He got into his first fight as a kid over a pigeon. And I, I know he keeps a lot of pigeons to this day. I've seen him on uh, videos on YouTube talking about pigeons. Uh, I think I'm almost done here. I'm checking things out. Um, oh, I did want to tell you uh, one more story. So pigeons were wild, widely used during the uh, two world wars to send messages. And if you want to hear a really heroic story, just look up a pigeon from World War I named Cher Ami, which means dear friend in French. Uh, this bird saved about 200 American soldiers during the war. And on its last mission, when he saved these soldiers, he got shot up really bad by the Germans while, while doing it. But the American soldiers saved him. Now, they couldn't save his leg, but they, they carved him a little wooden leg. Can you believe that? For this bird who saved their lives. And this bird was rewarded <laughs> with, I swear to God, the Croix de Guerre from the French government and was brought back to the United States to a hero's welcome by General Pershing himself. Yes. And when the bird finally passed away, they sent him to a taxidermist. And the bird with his croix de guerre are on display at the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. So if you're thinking about making a visit to D.C. to maybe go see the cicadas, <laughs> uh, go check out the uh, exhibit of Cher Ami at the Smithsonian. So in conclusion, they are really, really wonderful birds. And I hope that you'll take some time on Sunday, June 13th to get out there and show them some love. Okay, let's go to the park. So, today I'm taking you to uh, Fort Tryon Park, which is the closest park to my apartment in Manhattan, so I visit it pretty often. Um, <clears throat> it is uh, Thursday. June 10th, mid-afternoon. I think it's about uh, 81 degrees out here. And you can hear there's a robin right above me singing. Lots of robins in the park these days. So the fledglings are all just uh, starting to come of age. And uh, let's see, what can I tell you about Fort Tryon Park? It's uh, about 67 acres. I think it's one of the most beautiful parks in the New York City park system. <clears throat> it was designed by the Olmsted brothers, who were the sons of Frederick Law Olmsted, who was the designer of Central Park. And uh, it's very clear they took after their father on their motorcycle. Clearly they took after their father in their, 
ideas for designing and landscaping. Um, let's wait till this. Motorbikes. We're not that, we're actually, while it looks like I'm in the middle of the woods here, Broadway is <laughs> right over there. So you do hear some traffic, not so much when you get further, a little bit further in. Uh, anyway, let's keep moving. What we are looking for today are service berries. And, uh, oh, what is that? Looks like fox barrels. Uh, let me tell you. A little bit about this berry. Uh, first of all, they are edible. Uh, wildlife love them, but I love them too. And the easiest way to start spotting them is in the spring. Around April, they're going to start flowering. And they have really, really pretty small little white flowers. <clears throat> and the, the trunks are fairly distinctive too. They've got very smooth... Uh, it's almost geometric like trunks. So they're pretty easy to spot and, and ID. Uh, and then you wait. And then sometime in June, the berries start to ripen. And they look like crab apples almost. And I think a lot of people might mistake them for that unless they uh, touch them. Because when you do touch them when they're ripe, they're very squishy like a berry and they will literally just fall right off into your hand when they're super ripe. So I'm going to go up this way. We still have a little way, so let's turn this off and come back in a little bit. So I kept walking around in the park, and uh, <laughs> I didn't realize it till later that how hot I was and because I was climbing these <laughs> steep hills, I was a little bit out of breath. So that's something for me to remember for the uh, the next podcast. But uh, I eventually pulled over and sat down and caught my breath and here we go. So I have with me today the, get it my bag, the ever so handy Peterson Field Guides to Trees and Shrubs. Uh, I don't know that I would say it's, if you're just getting started in this, it would be the best one. I think some people like more actual photographs of trees. And there are, uh, there are a couple really good books that do that. But this one I think is closest to what you would find in a key. Let's sit down here for a second. Get this book out. Oh, and a plane overhead. Um, this is normally a pretty quiet section of the park. I like to call it the, the snow white section because a lot of people come here to feed the birds and the squirrels. So the wildlife is <laughs> almost a little too friendly in this area. So according to Peterson Field Guide, which I swear by, so uh, these are tree uh, shrubs or small trees. And uh, they have a couple different names. Uh, I usually say serviceberry, but Juneberry, Shadberry is also another, another word. Um, the best way to find this tree to begin with is in April because it's going to flower really early and it's going to have these beautiful little white cluster flowers on it. And they're pretty easy to ID. I think the trunk is 
Uh, also helpful is an ID. Uh, and then once June comes around, these berries are going to start to ripen and they're going to turn different colors. And the key is you want to wait. You've got to be patient because they're going to be green, then they're going to turn kind of yellow, then pink, and then red. And you go, aha, they're done. Nope, you got to wait some more. And you got to wait till they get really, really purple, like the color of a blueberry. And I think that's probably uh, the berry they are the most similar to in taste and, and in looks. They, they really do look like a little um, blueberry. You can plant these in your yard if you're looking for an interesting tree to put in your, in your yard that will give you uh, flowers in the spring, berries in the summer, and they do actually have some really beautiful uh, fall colors as well. So uh, if you're lucky enough to live in some place where you can have a yard, unlike New York City, uh, you can definitely plant these. So let's get back to the, uh, the book here. Um, there are different, this is why I brought this with me today, because I was here yesterday and I already picked a bunch of berries. Oh gosh, this is more than I expected. So there are different kinds of, I think how many, how many species in this genus? I can't remember. Uh, it's not like a like hundred, but it's actually quite a few. And they do hybridize. So the marks of identification aren't always that great. Um, okay, so we've got the downy Juneberry, the smooth Juneberry, the inland Juneberry, swamp Juneberry, Bartram Juneberry, a whole bunch of these here. I was going to try and find out actually which one this was specifically, but I don't think that's going to happen today because at least not in the park. I might take some sample leaves and take them home. So let's, let's head over. Um, let me see. What else can I tell you about this tree? Um, like I said, they are edible to people, for people, but uh, wildlife really, really love them. So again, if you're looking for a nice tree to plant in your yard that will encourage birds, this would be it. And, uh, oh, what a pretty pigeon. How is that pigeon? Speaking of Pigeon Appreciation Day coming up on Saturday. Uh, now, a little bit further away. Um, let's see. So, I would, like I said, I was going to try and find out exactly which species of Juneberry this is, but uh, I think it's going to take me a little longer than I thought. Uh, so, we're getting up closer here. Um, squirrels. There's a bus going through. Uh, here we are. So these trees, they're, they're fairly small. There's a cardinal in there right now, a female cardinal. Also, uh, another bird is it? What bird is that? I can't tell. I don't have my... But uh, you really will have to fight the wildlife for these berries. But do not pick them all. Save some for the wildlife, please. Uh, another nice thing, another squirrel. Another nice thing about these berries is that... Uh, I feel like a dog. Squirrel, squirrel. Uh, nice thing about these berries is they do not ripen all at the same time. They're going to ripen gradually. So, you know, one day you're going to get a few, next day you're going to get a few more, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so you can keep coming back and picking them. Let me get up. There's a squirrel eating the berries. We've got a, card a female cardinal in the tree. Let's see what else is in this tree eating these berries. 
Ah, uh, there's a sparrow. It's like a song sparrow, I think. Uh, and it blew off. But this is, I, I was here yesterday and there was a rat at my feet eating these berries. So let me describe the trunk. It's very smooth. Um, and it kind of, it has one big trunk at the bottom and then it sort of branches out. I'm going to post some pictures in the, in the show notes so you can see that. But then it has these beautiful little clusters of berries. That's weird. Is that a gall? I don't know what that is. It's a very odd... Let me take a picture of this. Um, very odd-looking growth. Oops. Very odd-looking growth on this berry. And I want to find out what that is. Um, it could be some kind of a gall. It's definitely a lot of, like... Yeah, that's got to be some kind of gall. All right, I'll go on iNaturalist with that later and try and stump the band. So... Anyway, get back to... Am I still recording? Oh, this is so new to me. Yep, I'm still recording. Okay. So, um, you get these little clusters of berries. And when you're picking them, when they're ripe, you'll know they're ripe because they will literally just fall. You, you touch them, they'll almost fall into your hand without much of a, much of a pull. There's not a whole lot extra ripe here. There's another one of those things. That's got to be a gall. It can't be some kind of... Uh, I'm, I'm assuming most of you know what galls are, but not everyone does. Uh, a gall is basically a little uh, home for uh, insect larvae, usually a wasp. And it'll get onto the, the tree or the leaf or something. And, and then the, almost like a clam like makes a, makes a pearl, like it gets a little bit of grit in the clamshell and the clam sort of spits the stuff at it and the pearl is eventually formed. That's almost like what is happening with the tree. The gall affects the tree's hormones. And so it produces this substance that actually creates a little home for an insect larvae. And so we've got pigeons here eating the, eating the berries. Um, got a couple here. Like I said, when they're super ripe, when they're ready, they will pretty much just fall into your hand. Uh, not not so much as like a like a mulberry, but they will eventually just sort of fall off. And the nice thing about uh, you know when I pick these, obviously I can't pick the ones way up high. I'm not bringing a ladder or anything, but uh, you can get the you can get the someone else is picking berries. <laughs> you know which ones to get? The purple ones, but the... I'm sharing these with the animals. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So uh, let's get back to the berries. Not, not a whole lot extra ripe here today. Um, the ones I'm picking are sort of towards the end, so the squirrels would probably fall off before they got to these. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to keep picking a few berries, and then we'll, we'll come back. So here we are. I am back at home with my berries. I have cleaned them and some of the other things I picked at the park and put them away. Well, uh, berries I have right here with me. So a um, couple of things. I had some time to look up what that um, thing on the tree that I thought was a gall was, and I was wrong. It is not a gall. 
It is something called gymnosporangium rust, and it's a fungal disease. Um, it, the, the disease will not kill them, but it just makes the tree really miserable. And someone online compared it to like being in a relationship with an abusive partner and you just can't get away from them. So uh, the interesting thing about this disease is that it needs a plant from the rose or the cedar family nearby to uh, have this disease and then spread it to the particular tree. And uh, they said juniper in particular, is a prime suspect. And I do know for a fact that there are some juniper trees nearby. So that's the culprit, I'm assuming. A um, couple other things I discovered when I got back home. Uh, the name serviceberry. Uh, they, there's a myth, which they say is not true, but um, because this tree flowers so early in the spring, it really is one of the earliest trees to flower that the Native Americans would use that as a sign to let them know that now the ground was thawed and they could bury the dead, hence have a service. Um, people uh, dispute that. I think that's just kind of a myth. So I'll just put that out there just so you have it. Um, the other thing is I looked up, okay, if you're looking for, a, let me start here. If you're looking for a book about trees, that is um, simple, that is not as uh, complicated as the Peterson, which is, again, like I said, more of a key, um, that has pictures, but is not a child's book. <laughs> uh, I really recommend this book. I love it. It's called New York City Trees, and it's put out by the City of New York Parks and Recreation Department. It's really, really well done. Um, so each tree, you're going to have a picture of a tree itself. You're going to have a a drawing of the, the shape of the tree. You're going to get to see pictures of the different leaves and their variation. You'll see pictures of their flowering flowers if they have them, uh, the bark, um, any kind of fruiting body on the tree. It's, it's all there. And they will also tell you if, again, this is for anybody, I think even if you're not in New York, but if you are in New York, it will tell you where to look for this tree. Um, for example, in Manhattan, uh, it says Inwood Hill Park, southeast end of Clove. I know right where that is, so I might just go back there tomorrow and get some more berries. Um, but this book is, I think it's a really great book. Um, why was I going to say something else about this book? I, I don't, I don't think so. Anyway, so let's let's move on. Ah, uh, the other book I'm pulling out right now is the Bible of Foragers, I would say, in, at least in America, is Stalking the Wild Asparagus by Yule Gibbons, which came out in the early, I believe 19, maybe 1962. Anyway, I've had this copy forever, and uh, it's really well-loved, I'll say that. So um, what Yule Gibbons does is not only does he talk about the plant itself, but he will also give you some ideas for what to do with the, these berries. Um, he writes, they are delicious as a stewed fruit or sauce served hot or cold. Add one cup of sugar to three cups of berries and simmer for 20 minutes. So if you want to maybe make some uh, cheese blintzes and pour that over the top, this would that would be delicious with this. Um, let's see, pies, he suggests, muffins. I'm not a muffin person. I just find them really dry and bland, so I will not be making muffins. Um he does also su uh, suggest, you know, canning, freezing, all that good stuff, making jams, obviously. But here was something I, I just noticed. 
he wrote uh, the the well the Indians. <laughs> this is 1960. So, the Native Americans used to dry great quantities of June berries and Northwestern service berries for out-of-season use. They are easily dried on flat trays in the sun. The dried berries taste so different from the fresh fruit that they have to be considered another kind of food. They are very good, used like currants in puddings and muffins, or just stewed and eaten. So I'm assuming that's either like like uh, prunes, like dried prunes, or um, dried cranberries. But that's something I've never done, and I think I'm going to try that uh, this year, not with these particular berries. So... Uh, I did accidentally get some berries that were more, more closer to red color than the purple, but because it, w- it was really sunny and I had my sunglasses on and they looked purple, I swear, but they are not. So it's fine. They just are going to be a little bit tangier, which I am perfectly fine with. So I'm going to use these to make a crumble. Oh, one other thing I wanted to let you know about these berries. They do have little seeds inside. And I would say they're about the size of a blackberry seed, uh, but they're even softer. So you can eat the seeds. They're perfectly fine. You might, the first time you eat a berry, you might go, mm, but then you, you get over it. They're, they're, they're perfectly fine. And they're not, again, they're very, very soft. And when you cook them, it gets even softer. So let's go cook some, uh, cook some crumble up. And I'm back. So I uh, measured out my service berries, and I have a little over a cup of berries. I'd say maybe about a quarter and a, a cup and a quarter or so. So if you have a, I don't know how many berries you are going to get, but if you have a favorite crumble recipe, you can pretty much use that. And you know, depending on if your your amount of fruit that is used in that, I the recipe I'm using right now is a recipe I use for rhubarb crumble, and that calls for four cups of uncooked cut up rhubarb. So I kind of, you know, I, I do a lot of baking, so I was able to kind of uh, figure out how to how to do this and switch my measurements out. And plus, I know how this thing turns out. So uh, if you've never had a crumble, it's kind of like a pie without the crust. So you're going to mix some um, brown sugar, oats, flour, uh, and melted butter with some cinnamon. I actually used some brown butter that I had, which is going to make it extra delicious. And uh, you mix that all up and make it like a very crumbly. And then you put a little bit on the bottom, then you're going to put your fruit in there, and then you're going to do like a slurry. You're going to mix some sugar, white sugar this time, and then a little bit of cornstarch and cold water. Then you put that on a pan, boil it up. That cornstarch is going to thicken up. It's going to be your thickener to kind of bind your fruit together a little bit. And then you, uh, at the end, you put a little vanilla in there. You're going to pour that mixture over the fruit, and then you put the rest of the crumble on top. Bake it in the the oven. I'm going to do this for about 360 degrees. And because I have a small amount of berries, I was able to find a small little um, uh, ceramic dish that worked out really well. Um, By the way, I use salted butter because I'm from a little further down south, and that's how we roll. So I'm going to put this in the oven at 350 degrees, and... uh, uh, it's about for about an hour, maybe. I'll I'll keep checking it after about forty minutes because it is a smaller batch. So let's pop this baby in the oven. So the crumble is in the oven, and I just noticed that I really got bit up in the <laughs> something just 
uh, made lunch out of me. I have uh, on my legs and my left arm. So I went to go put some anti-itch cream on. And believe it or not, it is a cream that I make from things that I find in the park. And I have found that it works better than anything I've bought over the counter. And maybe I'll do an episode about that later in the summer. Um, I'll keep that in mind. Anyway, let's get back to talking about National Pigeon Appreciation Day. What can you do for the pigeons on their special day? Well, obviously the first thing to do would be go outside and meet a pigeon. And for New Yorkers, you don't even have to go to the park. You can probably open the door to your apartment building and there they will be. Um, so give them some love. Give them some bird seed. Uh, please don't give them bread or pizza or your leftover takeout. I mean, I know maybe in the wintertime that's not so horrible, but this is their special day. So why not treat them? If you're wanting to know <clears throat> what pigeons like to eat, I'm going to send you to a website for the National Pigeon Association. They have, it's a real thing, and they have a really great, great website that's going to tell you, right, I think it's on just on the opening page, like what you can feed pigeons that it will be good for them and that they will be happy to get. Um, so check out their website. They're a really great resource. The other thing you can do is find your local wildlife rescue in your area. Um, if you live in a big city, chances are there is one and you don't even know it's there. Uh, just Google wildlife rescue rehab and type in your area. And if there is one, there's, there's going to be a donate page. So you can send them a donation, even something as small as $20. They really know how to stretch a dollar in those places. I mean, they know how to stretch a dime. They really do make every penny work. And they have such small budgets and you know, a lot of volunteer staff, so they could really use your help. Um, also, they may have a list on that website of things that they can use that you have just laying around the house, taking up space, that you can donate to them. Things like old towels are great. If you have towels that are kind of stained and worn, they can use those. Um also, things like uh, Tupperware containers, ceramic dishes. Uh, right now, because COVID is kind of on the wane, there might be a lot of you out there with boxes of you know, rubber gloves that you're not going to use. They can use those. Um, I will say, check with your rescue because I know the one in my area, they were uh, saying they will not, they didn't want to take latex gloves. They only wanted vinyl. And I'm not sure why that is. If like someone had an allergy to latex or if it's an issue for the wildlife, I, I really don't know. But um, that's another thing. Also, if you I know a lot of people are being really fashionable with the masks, the masks. So if you have um, a lot of those old uh, blue masks just taking up space and you want to get rid of them, they can use those. The basic thing you can do also is just post something on social media about pigeons. Take a picture of a pigeon and help spread the love about National Pigeon Appreciation Day. They really are wonderful, noble birds, and they can really use your help. So let's go check on this crumble. 
So I just took the crumble out of the oven. Uh, by the way, my kitchen smells amazing between the uh, berries and the cinnamon and vanilla and the brown butter. It just smells delicious in here. And it really is good. I, I snuck a taste already. It's really good and it's bubbly and crispy. And I'm going to have that with some ice cream now as a little treat. So um, before I go... I just wanted to say thank you so much, everyone who uh, listened to my first podcast. Um, I promise they're going to get better and, <laughs> and a little more uh, organized and a little, um, and somebody else besides me talking. It reminds me of uh, when I took this class once in TV writing. He was a, he was a writer who had written for Monk. And he was a really nice guy. <laughs> I remember at the during the first day of class at some point, he just stopped and he went, wow, I didn't realize teaching involves so much talking. So it's <laughs> kind of what I'm realizing right now with the podcast. So I can't wait to get some uh, guests on here so I don't have to do so much talking and so much research because I love getting uh, information from other people and learning from them. So enjoy your weekend. Go out and see the pigeons and get out into your parks and uh, enjoy your summer. Thanks. Goodbye. The music you heard was Time for Django by Studio the Bus. No pigeons were harmed in the making of this program. <laughs> <laughs>